Did you ever think, man, that rape scene from Platoon should have been its own full-length movie? No? Well, that sounds reasonable. I agree. No one wants that. Let me ask you another. Have you at any point thought, I wish Michael J. Fox had been given more opportunity as a dramatic actor because his trademark reaction shot of dumbfounded exasperation would work just as well in a movie about wartime atrocity as it does when he plays a teenage werewolf. I bet you never thought that either. So right off the bat, Casualties of War answered a lot of questions no one asked. But it didn't stop there. Why didn't Jeff Spicoli and Alex P. Keaton ever appear on a special episode of L.A. Law? Why doesn't Dale Dye get more speaking parts? Did John C. Riley look 54 when he was 24? Or does he still look 24 now that he's 54? The real challenge here is that nobody wants to watch a movie about this. It's based on the true story of what became known as the Incident on Hill 192, which was the subject of four courts martial during the war. And it really illustrates how the Hollywood process of getting a film made can slowly go off the rails without anyone noticing before it's too late. You can easily picture the scene. A long conference table with ten white guys in their 30s all wearing double-breasted gray suits with yellow paisley ties. The air redolent of hair gel, CK-1, and last night's Bartles and James. They need a Vietnam pick because those are hot, hot, hot right now. Somebody read a New Yorker article about the sadistic rape and murder of an innocent Vietnamese girl and the subsequent wartime cover-up that led to a handful of indictments and some slap-on-the-wrist convictions, and that appeals to their vanity as movie executives. They are serious artists, not just making schlock. Hell, they're at least as smart as some dumb New Yorker writer. Brian Palma is attached. Anthony Michael Hall is cast as the sadistic sergeant and Ricky Schroeder as the kid with a conscience, but both drop out at the last minute. They try for Mel Gibson and Robert Downey Jr., but they're already making a buddy pick about the secret war in Laos. So get Sean Penn and Michael J. Fox stat! This is a brutal film, but not in a way that is good. It's made by and for that school of smarty pants who think movies that make us feel bad are doing us some kind of service. They don't trust us to watch a war movie and piece together that people sustain wounds and die horribly, and to reflect on that as we wrestle with it in context. It used to be that the movies that made us think actually left some of the thinking to us. Brutality wasn't graphically depicted, not because filmmakers were timid or censured or had run out of corn syrup gore, but because there was enough damn brutality in the world already. Moviegoers were trusted to understand, as the camera panned away from the gruesome horror, that the gruesome horror continued off screen. But Casualties of War sort of ushered in this new era, where a carefully blocked and rehearsed long and harrowing rape and murder scene filmed partly in slow motion was some medicine we were supposed to swallow, and lingering over the violence was a sign of intelligence rather than sociopathy. Hollywood auteurs like to say their brutal film is here to make us think, but then they show us everything, and there's no room for us to think. What this movie made me think is, I don't need this movie. And now this was Tarantino's favorite Vietnam movie, so he claims. Roger Ebert said it was a difficult watch and we should take our medicine. I'm paraphrasing. Columbia Pictures thought it would be a big hit. They were drafting off De Palma's The Untouchables, which is an actual great movie and makes no pretense about not being a comic book and everyone should go watch it again right now. The burgeoning market for Vietnam films during this Rambo-driven late 80s cultural reappraisal made all the studios think that they couldn't lose. But audiences did not exactly come out in droves for this. What is the opposite of a drove? A drivel? Mm, can you imagine the unlucky few who chose to see this movie at the drive-in on a first date, based on the lead actors alone? 
That would be one long, quiet ride home, and all anyone would be thinking is, let this date be over. You can see how desperately casualties of war aspired to join the ranks of Apocalypse Now and Platoon and the Deer Hunter. It's similarly shot, similarly anti-war, it's deeply critical of the military way of doing things, and it points an accusing finger at a system that turns thousands of heavily armed 20-year-old men loose on an ungoverned country led into battle by 22-year-old sergeants and junior officers in service of a foreign policy no one believes or understands, while the upper echelons congregate in the rear with no clear objectives and zero investment in the outcome. In that sense, it's similar. It's also earnest and an even poignant movie, and it doesn't shy away from naming rape as an instrument of war and subjugation. But in the end, you just want it to be over so you can go read the New Yorker article. Some magazine articles have already reached their final form. When asked at the time about the possibility that this movie could fail, Michael J. Fox characterized the film as being about how much you will risk if you have nothing to gain. Well, we're about to find out. This ain't the army, Sarge. Today on Friendly Fire, Casualties of War. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast with the hosts, who are three armor-plated motherfuckers. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. <laughs> Everything okay over there, guys? No, yeah, I mean, as okay as it ever is. Adam's got a, Adam's got a complex office uh, here that he's used to being in by himself. Yeah. And then every once in a while, he invites, every, every week, he invites a giant bull into his china shop. And I'm I'm just all elbows and most people who meet me for the first time would assume that I'm someone who spends most of my time by myself. <laughs> so that's that's consistent. Guys, I didn't feel like I had enough armor plating for this, this movie. For this movie. This movie really got to me. It has three acts for sure, and the and the first act and the second act and the third act take you on a journey. I sort of guessed what I was in for because Brian De Palma trades in the bleak like he is not a person that makes fun films not like to the degree that any war film can be fun but like none of his films i feel like are especially like boy i'm really glad i saw that brian de palma film (laughs) (laughs) like scarface maybe being the most notable example of this like everyone had a scarface poster on their college dorm room but those are the people who never really watch Scarface and recognize it as a garbage film. But The Untouchables was a fun movie. That's the outlier. Yeah. But, but did did you ever see Body Double? No. Uh, I bo- saw Double Impact. Was it like that? No, Body Double <laughs> Body Double was a movie from the mid-80s that was very much a kind of um, Miami Vice looking, Ooh. but super duper dark weird kind of kind of like sex crime film okay that i just i went to it was one of those like friday nights and and uh, a group of us oh god this movie poster is yeah is a creep show a, a, a group of us like we were all it was maybe 10th grade or the summer between 10th and 11th grade and we were just at that age when we could 
a group of five of us could go see an R-rated movie and nobody would stop us at the, and we just picked this one kind of out of a hat, like, oh yeah, let's go see Body Double. And it really, it really did a number on us all. Wow. It was pretty sexy. The modern master of suspense invites you to witness a seduction. I think a lot of De Palma does not hold up particularly well. How, so what do you think of, uh, do, does this movie hold up? I don't know. It's The casting was really hard for me to wrap my head around. Me too. And I so after I watched the movie, I went and read the New Yorker article that it's based on. And the, the there are a few things that the movie changes from the article for dramatic purposes, I imagine. But the fake names that they pick for the for Meserve and Erickson are the same fake names that they have in the in the article and like Erickson is this like Minnesota farm boy who works as a cabinet maker in Minneapolis after the war and has like a nice wife who like is like repeatedly throughout the article offering the the journalist like a tea cake or something while he sits there and like talks about this horrible episode in Vietnam with, with Sven Erickson. And like, I kind of started to come around to the idea that Michael J. Fox is perfect for this guy because he's such a, he's a diminutive man. Yes. You know, he's smaller than all of the other guys in his group. And that's not the case that is made in the article, but visually like you get the you get the feeling that Erickson is in a terrible position from the second this misadventure starts and is in like very serious danger because of what the guys in his group set out to do and the fact that he is basically the only person uh who has gone on record as being against it at the at the start, the casting. I mean, pretty early on in the film, Michael J. Fox makes the exact same um, sort of reaction shot uh, that he makes in Back to the Future when he realizes that his dad is a peeping tom. The exact same, like my dad is a peeping tom, except he's making it about the kidnapping and rape of a Vietnamese girl. Yeah. And so it was just jarring, like, what is he doing in this movie? No. But I agree with you that over time he he got uh he inhabited the role and, and I do I do feel like he stepped up. I mean Sean Penn gives a pretty amazing performance. He disappears into it so far that he's kind of unrecognizable as Sean Penn. He does a little bit of like yeah. co- cotton in the cheeks or whatever. This was a conflict between Michael J. Fox and Sean Penn on the set, which was uh, Michael J. Fox tells this story. He's like, so I met Sean Penn at the airport to fly out to Thailand. And uh, I was warned that the Sean Penn that I met there would not be Sean Penn. He would be uh Meserve. already. And Sean Penn treated Michael J. Fox like shit the entire time to like to evoke this feeling to to diametrically oppose the characters. And when they're over there, uh, Sean Penn, I guess, was sitting right next to Brian De Palma and was like making fun of Michael J. Fox. Like 
when you shoot scenes of uh, like shot reverse shot, you're like shooting over a guy's shoulder and then you're cutting back across. You're doing these things, and the uh, and oftentimes you won't see the face of the actor speaking to the actor on camera. When that person is Sean Penn, Sean Penn was telling M- Michael J. Fox, "You're just a fucking Back to the Future bullshit comedy actor. Like, what are you doing out here in this war zone?" And then that was prompting Michael J. Fox's attitude in responding with his dialogue like sean penn was fucking with him the entire time and that stirred up his his reaction to this but even with all of that in play like i feel i feel like this is more a trick in casting than it was in michael j fox's performance like michael j fox great actor great actor in this movie but i don't feel like he rose to the level of something different this wasn't this didn't seem like a unique challenge to him to be every man in this setting versus every man in Hill Valley. It starts out creating a kind of, it starts out in a post platoon universe. We're very familiar with this setting and this vernacular. He's the cherry. The, the old guys have are, are razzing him. Um, they're in a firefight in the jungle. They're a long range patrol. We've seen it all before. Right. And- the, like the, that opening scene almost feels like, the platonic ideal of the crappy opening scene of a crappy Vietnam movie. Yeah. And there's something in the way it's lit and there's something in the way it's filmed that it feels like a made for TV movie compared to some other Vietnam movies that we've seen and some that came before it. So, and the presence of Michael J Fox really emphasizes in those first scenes that this is a lesser film. One thing that does not indicate that to me is Ving Rhames, who I immediately missed after this first scene. I was like, oh, man, I wonder if we're going to get any more Ving Rhames. Just the tone in his voice. You hear me talking, hillbilly boy? He is great at this role. Yeah. And and such an unusual, like, we don't get the black lieutenant hardly ever. Hardly yeah. ever. Full stop. But then, like, the fact that he's, like, super competent here, and then that is, like, totally complicated by his worldview later yeah is so juicy i am glad we're talking about the bookends to this film because i think that uh the white hot center of this film is so bright and terrifying that i think you miss that i think it's easy to miss all of that like the thing that i i hope we don't remember about this film is just that center. There's so much Vietnam movie stuff where the atrocity is suggested, mm-hmm. where um, where it happens uh, behind some bushes, or we hear about it later. Even in Platoon, the rape scene in Platoon is happening as a component of the larger atrocity of burning down the village and and killing everybody. Right. Um, but like my lay, I mean, there's a, there are a lot of famous atrocity stories out of Vietnam, but we don't spend 30 minutes reliving it. It's so fucked up to almost want a greater atrocity to, to make the atrocity we, we get easier to consume. Like the, mo- the movie tries to do that, or I mean, it, it sure. is not effective though. <laughs> in doing that at all i'm stating this very clumsily yeah i'm not sure what i uh, if i understand what you mean it is uh it is such a shot of horror 
that is unadorned by any other distraction. And super personal and the super The distraction intimate. of a greater atrocity might help this go down. Not that you want help consuming it, but I'm saying like it is so powerful and awful and it's so in your face. Like the way that, that John's describing, other Vietnam films are two hours of atrocity. And right. this is like run up atrocity run down in a way that, that makes it worse somehow. Yeah, the like business presentationness of it where it's like it tells you what it's going to show you, it shows you and then it tells you what it showed you. Yeah. Is like it's such a small story in some ways. And and yet kind of it reverberates out through like you know, your understanding of the use of rape as a weapon of war, you know, and and like the way the structure of chain of command can engender this and protect you know provide cover for this kind of thing and that like uh that feeling in in vietnam especially where it's not clear who the enemy is and we see it in vietnam movies all the time Uh, uh, there's a breaking point where uh, a platoon loses a soldier that's beloved to them through some kind of uh deceit you know like the like some kid rides up on a bicycle and and throws a grenade and the soldiers lose their shit and they want get back and they say it out loud like we're going to get some get back and they and what had already been a process of dehumanizing the Vietnamese like clicks into something else where it's just like they're animals they're all the enemy we're here to destroy something in me changed watching this film that went like it became less of a Vietnam War film and more about just the danger of mob mentality and unchecked power and like institutional power and like how how like the most dangerous kind of power is is the kind that comes with arrogance and stupidity at the same time. A story like this is like one of those stage plays that could be uh, told in any time in any workplace in any situation like this is an exportable idea and it became less about vietnam to me and more about like how how monstrously this power can wield itself anywhere well and also this is something that we should look at more in all of the war movies we look at which is that every single person that made up the real players in this scene including the girl and every soldier, they were all between the ages of 20 and 22. Yeah. And they grew up in a world where there was lead in the gasoline. There's lead in the gas. That's right. They were all eating lead paint. But, I mean, I have always felt that that, that this period in, in human beings, right, between the ages of 15 and 25, when you are you look fully grown, but your prefrontal cortex has not come all the way online. Right. And we give... We give 18 to 20-year-olds guns and authority and stripes on their shirts when they are not really even physically capable of, of having good judgment. And that's a major component in the way we wage war. And, and, I, and, and I believe it's intentional because young people are malleable and they, they don't calculate risk. Um, but in situations like this where you're putting – five 20 year olds out on a long range patrol and they have they have all the latitude to start making decisions like this you know it's a recipe for disaster and mob mentality 
good example, but like also, I mean, anytime I'm walking down the street at night and I see a group of, of, uh, 17-year-old boys, I cross, <laughs> cross the, street. the street. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, if they're wearing college sweatshirts, all the worse, right? It's If they're wearing Yale sweatshirts, worst of all. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's that de- depending on what version of, of 17-year-old you get, that it is the common thread is avoid 17-year-old boys if there are more than two of them. Yeah. I mean, 21-year-olds uh, in groups are, I mean, they were the fan base of the long winters. I can't possibly say that I avoided them. Mm. I stood in front of them and tried to tried to mold their young minds. You tried to marshal <laughs> their power? <laughs> yeah, I tried to marshal their power into buying more t-shirts of my band. They're out there right now waiting for you to activate them. I know, they're 36 now, though. You have 14 Manchurian candidates listening to the show right now. <laughs> hold in place, hold in place. Uh, but yeah, the personal, the, the intimacy of the group and the fact that Diaz was the character that didn't want to participate and got bullied into it. I mean, that was the 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 John C. Riley character being soft-minded. You could sort of D&D all of these characters, right? The yeah. Leguizamo character is like true neutral up until that moment when he's put to a decision. Right. Where he where he does the he weighs the consequences. Where it's like, if I go against these guys, they're going to frag me. Yeah. And so the lesser of two evils is to participate in this rape. He's like me. The last person to talk to him is... Is, <laughs> is the one he agrees with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. He's my guy, isn't he? Oh, no. <laughs> Boy, you really backed up into that one, Adam. Uh, uh, Ouch. This you is hard, terrible. You hardly ever get a guy imposed on you. Uh. Leguizamo and John C. Riley's characters were characters. They're made up, unlike the other three members of the of the group. There was actually like the thing that this is based on is is real, and there was a real five man squad. But they swapped out two cousins for these uh, the John C. Riley and the and the Leguizamo character. And I I liked watching Leguizamo fail morally and and I thought that the John C. Riley character was also an interesting representation. This is his film debut also. Really? John C. Riley. And yeah. for Leguizamo. John C. Riley has that Paul Rudd thing going on where he's been the same age his entire life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. He's such a young dude here. Yeah. And exactly the same. And of all the actors in this in this film, to imagine that John C. Riley would be the breakout like yeah. indie star of all these people. I mean, there are a lot of every one of these actors kind of went on to greater things. Don't you wish you had a beer? The cast is really stacked. Dale Dye gets like a lot more to do than he usually does. I know, and I wasn't I wasn't a hundred percent sure about it either. Dale Dye usually says a few curt words and and looks and looks off into the distance and yeah he waits for the remaining ordinance that's right but in this in this film he gets a lot more to do and and i was uh i was on the fence he didn't quite convince me but he's got he's got a very that's a very tough needle to thread right like the he's the captain who is you know hearing the report that a squad of american soldiers uh went out and abducted a young woman raped her and murdered her and is like 
uh, like my career, like, like this could be bad for my career if this, if this gets out and it, and it, you know, becomes known to my superiors that I have, you know, like my command contains people that act like this and, you know, that, that, that things like this happened on my watch. But also, he's not totally amoral in, in, at the same time, you know, he splits up the, the group. He's like, he's trying to do something. And he's not, he's not just like getting Erickson as far out of the, out of the way as possible, which is like, there's so much nuance in there. You kind of need somebody who's a really fantastic actor to convey all of that. And I just don't think, like, I think that when you think about what the Dale Dye character represents, it does, it's not quite what we get from the performance i kind of dig that about the dale die performance because what you have with uh with erickson at that moment is hope like the hope that justice will be served by a decent leader and instead what you get is the robot the robot captain and and i think dale die pretty well encapsulates that like i know there's a lot of nuance to be had there but it's almost like more in keeping with the loss of hope in that moment that he not display any of that decency that that he puts the situation out on the table as it is and and is is so not emotional about it i mean it's ving rames that is the moment of uh where we're he actually has real nuance he does and we're stunned by the fact that he tells this long anecdote where he establishes you know he he establishes and makes clear the connection between his civil rights experiences in the US and this moment and then he says what i learned is go along to get along and that's what you need to learn too and that's just like i mean he does a great job doing that and it's a real slap in the face in the movie and uh, i mean the the military here has a, a lot of the a lot of those scenes are informed by this chain of command mentality where Michael J Fox doesn't get what he wants from his lieutenant but the military doesn't allow you to go around your lieutenant very right. easily you don't just go to the captain you don't just go to the chaplain you don't just go to the press you get in line and so there's there's that element to that whole thing too which is just like you got your answer there is no if mom says no ask dad no, situation in the military right you can't have a you can't have a functioning military where every soldier is making their own moral inquisition about every decision but it has this effect of like diffusing responsibility for a crime like this and also mitigating anybody's personal responsibility right right and that's what's amazing about this whole story. It's such a dichotomy too, because like we've seen, I feel like times where the responsibility winding up being borne by a superior officer is what is stopping, you know, a soldier from doing something crazy. Like in Platoon, you know, Behringer takes an opportunity to frag someone when no one else is around, but but would never, you know, like like they have the hapless lieutenant in that one that is essentially being managed from underneath. Right. And, and this lieutenant, the, the Ving Rames character is fully in charge of his platoon. The way that that danger is depicted in platoon is like, Oh, 
better not be alone with with Tom Berenger. But in this film, like everyone is a pod person. Like you you can't go for help anywhere because everyone is on the same evil team. And the danger is so much more pronounced that way. Like there's no safe harbor for Michael J. Fox. He will square this shit away. He will ream some people out over this. It was a very effective and, and strange moment. After she's murdered, after the airstrike comes in on the on the little like Riverside Viet Cong supply depot, uh, and Michael J. Fox has done uh, quite a bit of sort of slow motion, like no bastards, <laughs> and he's left. You know, the rest of his squad run away, and he's left um, sprawled on that railroad trestle, looking down at the scene in the river, and he sees her. Now, you know, lifeless, crumpled body in the in the brush and then looks into the river and sees the uh, the swift boat team, which was friendly fire burned to death. Yeah. And he looks over at the shore and he sees, you know, dozens of guys who have been machine gunned and napalmed. And it's the one kind of moment in the film where it's made overt the question of all of these people were just brutally murdered. All of them were done a, done a disservice. This is happening all across Vietnam right now. And so why is this girl special? Why does she deserve justice any more than anyone else? And he sits in, it feels like he sits in that moment himself looking down on the scene at, because you know, the camera lovingly pans over all these dead people. And then kind of comes back to her. Comes back to her. And yet he doesn't ever... I mean, and I feel like that's the case that a lot of his antagonists in this movie are making, which is, why is this girl special? Yeah, we kidnapped her and raped her. Like, uh, guys, they're dying all over the place. Uh, Dale Dye says at one point, like, don't, don't lecture me about screaming. I've heard a lot of screaming in this war. And I think I think one of the flaws of this movie is that we're never... The Michael J. Fox character is not developed quite enough for us to fully understand why he is making this particular stand. He he says a couple of times that he's a Lutheran, and that's all we get. We know he's a country boy, but like, why was uh, John Leguizamo, why was he such a realist? They both... They both didn't want to rape the girl. Why did John Leguizamo make the expedient decision, but Michael J. Fox stood on his convictions? Where did he get that strength? Where did he get that morality? I didn't see the backstory. Yeah, and how, how did he overcome the fear of getting back to the platoon command or whatever it was and, and reporting it? He's the newbie here, and this sergeant that already saved his life that he respects, he Although he struggles, he ends up really standing up to the guy. They're putting yeah. grenades in his latrine, and he just gets more and more convinced. I wondered why when they tried to bomb the toilet, he didn't just report to the MPs that rushed up to it right then and there. Like, hey, like I, like, I can tell you specifically who set the grenade off in the, in the toilet because... John C. Riley just said his name out loud three feet from me. In the order of operations of his story, I mean, this comes right after 
he's gone up the mountain twice with his accusations or, or with his story of what happened out in the field and having been rebuffed both times, he knows that he's not seen as a, as a viable, he, he has no credibility to anyone above him. I mean, he's credible, but he's not, uh, he's not listened to. Yeah. He didn't want to get marginalized as just a complainer. He was making his moral stand about a thing and he needed to stay on target. In the article, the latrine bombing was a, is a fabrication in the film and the, but there was a moment where one of the other guys in that squad uh, may have attempted to to kill Erickson, and it was like a like Erickson was out on some patrol with a new squad that he'd been been put in, and suddenly they came under fire, and it was a another squad that was like hiding in the hiding in the bushes who claimed that they thought they heard vc but it turned out it was you know americans and and they cease fire and like one of the other guys happened to be among that squad huh a much more unclear situation like was he the one that started shooting or did they really like legitimately think that they were hearing Viet Cong go by and shot before they were sure or what but that that feeling that feeling of being out with a team who could kill you. I thought that they did a good job of communicating that and, and also making it feel difficult, right? Sean Penn, his character, he was really good at delegating, but he delegated a lot of the violence to his other guys. He didn't want to kill her. He wanted someone else to do it. Yeah, Clark was volunteering. He was trying to spread the guilt around so that they would all be kind of equally complicit and therefore yeah. you know nobody would lower the likelihood of of anybody reporting it but and and I liked that they kind of that that was all heavily implied in his behavior but they never quite come out and say that that's what he's doing yeah again it was a if there uh, some of the umbrage that those guys took was because Michael J Fox refusing his order to rape the girl was a was a military discipline issue to Sean Penn he was like, I gave you an order. Like, I have two stripes. He got a shovel to the face for his trouble. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talking about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm-hmm. The reviews are in. Mm-hmm. 
Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. Adam, what did you think about the the look and feel of this movie? I think John touched on this earlier. It it felt in keeping with other Vietnam War films that we've seen. I think maybe the most unique aspect of the battle scenes in this film have to do with the tunnels. Yeah, and I re- and I really could have used more of that. Uh, I could have used more of the reason for why Erickson wanted to be a tunnel rat. Like I understood contextually what that job might've been, but that is a job and an aspect of this war that I don't think any film that we've seen for friendly fire has, has dove into platoon. Yeah, I guess. Is that like really a specialty though? Like was there, there was, there were people that were specifically, yeah, you had to be really small. The border terriers of, the army yeah it was it was a gnarly gnarly job i think volunteer only and and you had to be short of stature to, yeah. to do it yeah huh. yeah not just short but small like skinny yeah i mean i think just the things that stand out to me in this film aren't so much technical as they are emotional i just feel like platoon sets such a high bar and it's yeah. a movie like this that makes me realize things about platoon that i wouldn't have otherwise which is like to shoot in the jungle and to to give the depth of field. Platoon makes you feel like you're in the jungle and this and maybe it was the way the ordnance went off too. There was a lot of stuff in this that didn't feel like shelling, that felt like flashpots. We uh we rarely get the wide shot in this film that we get in an apocalypse now, especially and those right. wide shots feel so dangerous in a film like Apocalypse Now because you're just, the feeling of being seen is always present. And I feel like, uh, and feel free to to correct this, but it feels like this film was shot far closer, far more intimately in a way that made the locus of its story different. We're not looking out into the jungle and experiencing the dread of what might be out there. Like the danger is right in front of us. The danger is in that hut. The danger is on the railroad tracks. It's very subjectively shot, and I feel like there's this frequent split diopter shot that will show so Michael much. J. Fox in on one side of the frame looking toward camera and something important happening behind him. One contrasting version of that shot where it's Sean Penn in the foreground shaving, and he's like clearly coming up with his scheme while he's shaving. And, you know, telling the guys like, yeah, I'm going to brief you guys at 2100 about what we're doing tomorrow. You're on break till then. And it it like means something different when it's on Sean Penn, I feel like. There's such a like banality to his evil too. Like the frustration of not being given leave as being the inciting incident for his awful plan. It's just like, it's such a different brand of evil than than the institutional kind of reactionary evil that we get later on. And to get both of them in the same story in the same movie is a lot. He's got that kind of stand your ground libertarian attitude. Like he, 
he's he's one of those characters that really likes being in a in a war zone where if he wants to kill somebody he has lots of opportunities for it certainly clark is presented as a sociopath you think he down me sean penn is uh, yeah it feels like much more of a he's just kind of a assistant to the regional manager right he's like a dummy who's been given that third stripe weirdly in the in the actual people involved he was the sergeant but he was only 20 and the other people in his squad were privates first class and they were 21 22 so he must have excelled in boot camp Meserve's heroism only serves him reputationally like within the chain of command but like i feel like in in a lot of war movies that first scene where Meserve uh rescues erickson is like oh like we have complicated feelings about Meserve because he's also a hero but like we never have complicated feelings about Meserve like that complication is only present administratively right i mean we we have a lot of complicated feelings about sergeant barnes right yeah um were you guys confused initially that they were calling him Reserve? I, I kept mishearing what they were saying for his name, and it was like it was like a third of the way through the movie before I realized that was his last name. It's a strange choice, I guess, for the article to make up that name yeah. Yeah. as a choice. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the writer went to high school with a guy named Meserve. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to really stick it to yeah, Jake who he Meserve. hated. <laughs> <laughs> Jake Meserve, the bully of middle school. Yeah. There's a thing about this movie that is kind of set up. Now that we've seen so many war movies, this is our 81st show, right? Is that what we're led to believe? Depends on how you count it. We've got some bonus episodes. Right, the bonus apps that we highly recommend everyone uh, join our uh, fan support group to be able to hear. (laughs) Maximumfund.org slash donate. Um, But there's a way in which this movie is a heist film. Heist gone wrong. Yeah, there's that person in the crew with the cold feet. Yeah, that's that's some dark shit. It's especially dark, I think, because while this movie is highly condemnatory of the crime, I don't think that they go out of their way to give much consideration to this young woman. You know, she is brutally victimized from the second she appears on screen to the second she's murdered. And we really just have one scene where she has any opportunity to, you know, show us herself as a person, but she's already, it's already after the raping has begun. So she is, you know, swollen and bloody and starving and, you know, she's feverish and, and, you know, doesn't trust Erickson. Like it's, she's a rape MacGuffin. Yeah, she really is. She's not given any agency really. And I feel like that's, you know, this this movie is told entirely from Erickson's perspective and maybe a bit of a shame that, like, her humanity is not elucidated much at all, you know, because of the, the kind of story structure that they chose. Yeah, I felt that too. You know, but to cast the same woman as the woman on the Muni and then make it so that she gives... Erickson absolution in the end I thought was was criminal and insulting as insulting on the level of like a Spielbergian ending I thought it was disgusting hmm. 
I mean, a, like, a movie that makes the case that a sweaty guy staring at you on the Muni is actually a redeemable good guy. It's terrible. That she would look at him, recognize that he was a Vietnam vet, that he was staring at her because her Vietnamese-ness reminded him of his bad times, but she would recognize him as a as the hero of the story. I mean, is that what this movie is trying to say? That it wasn't his fault? That it's that he is forgiven for his inability to stop what happened out there? Like, is that really the message? Because that's sort of, like, on paper, that feels like the message. The, the movie really pulls the punch, too, because the case made at the end is that the four guys that participated in the rape were all sentenced to... You know, I mean, I guess Meserve's not convicted of the rape, but he's, you know, he's sentenced to 10 years in jail and Clark gets life. Like, all of those sentences were reduced or commuted. Like, that life sentence got commuted to 20 years and then he served eight, I think. And Meserve was out in... Was back in the military after that. Yeah, I don't have anything against the United States government. Uh, The Clark character, you know, the real person behind it was a a guy by the name of Stephen Cabot Thomas, who who did only serve, I think, um, you know, a small, small uh, portion of his sentence, was released and then ended up uh, convicted in another murder case 20 years later because he was a member of a white supremacist group and he aided and abetted a guy who killed a black guy in a in a road rage episode in a gas station. What a shocker that that guy would also be a white supremacist. Yeah, can you imagine? Can you imagine that he lived to kill again? Like he actually was a sociopath. Yeah. But I but as for like what this movie is trying to say, it's it's crazy, but let's put ourselves back in 1989. You've got to come back with me. Ben wasn't born yet. Ben wasn't born yet. <laughs> <laughs> the the final scenes of the movie I mean and that's one of the things I really wanted to slap to Palma he he starts the movie off with the with this shot on the Muni where we're looking at Michael J Fox but we're really looking over the shoulder at a guy reading a newspaper that says Nixon resigns yeah. and it's like you know you could just put the date underneath yeah. if you want us to know when it was that's pretty corny but the movie's made in 89 during a period before Vietnam was was open to you know before Bill Clinton made that made peace during this period of Vietnam War movies we're reckoning with the Vietnam War as a culture trying to find some redemption in it recognizing that it wasn't that that our that our earlier story that that it was a draw it, we won and it was Congress that lost it or whatever right uh you know we were really really struggling with that in the culture at the time and this movie is maybe there to let us all off the hook that there wasn't anything we could do about it. It was, we tried as a people, we, the, we, the, the right thinking American movie going public, uh, we would have been like Michael J. Fox, right? We would have, we, we, we would have recognized the atrocity and stood for what was right. We were just up against it. I mean, I don't know. That's a terrible message too. Yeah. There was a pretty significant backlash against this movie by veterans groups as being just kind of a pile on. And 
I thought that that was like I, was, I read this whole article that was kind of like you know the both sides newspaper article of we talk to people that think it's bad and people that think it's good you know and like you know the idea that uh you could see this movie and walk out thinking it's it is condemning every soldier that participated in vietnam is so hard for me to wrap my mind around but i guess there had been enough there had been enough consistent uh films about like this kind of tragedy or or atrocity or or whatever taking place that they like i had the, i found this quote from a veterans group that uh, the president of a veterans group john wheeler said every dollar spent to see this film is a knife in the heart of some vet his kids or others who love him wow and it's a little dramatic like erickson is the hero of the movie he's the guy that like like called out a crime you know it's not making the case that every single person in the military is bad it's just making the case that some are well except and i I am not going i'm not defending uh that that idea but there are no good soldiers in this movie it's the cia that ends up making the case yeah every single every single person in the chain of command and every soldier we meet is complicit there's not oh except for erickson's one friend and the chaplain right the 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 chaplain and the and the guy that erickson confides in whom we're never it's never really revealed who that guy is but every single other person is a is either a monster or or a by the book uh like lockstepper i should say that interrogation scene is like good cia bad cia (laughs) that's what's happening in there and it's only inferred by their polo shirts right is, I didn't. I didn't realize that they were supposed to be CIA. Is that well, true? Well, CID or somebody, you know, like civilian, or maybe they were Army intelligence just wearing polo shirts. Huh. A polo shirt in Vietnam really does send a pretty clear message. That's where I went with it. Yeah, that you're you're working for Air America. So the the chaplain is Methodist in the film. Uh, the real life chaplain was Mormon. Whoa. And Erickson, like, worked very hard to find a chaplain that he could trust and confide this in because he needed somebody that was, like, of equal rank to the Dale Dye character to, like, actually move the needle. And, and he, like, he was not, like, drunk in a bar when that guy found him. He, like, he like cultivated a relationship with this chaplain wow. and, and made sure that he could he could trust him. And... Isn't that a better story? That seems like a better story to me. I don't know why you would change that. You're like, taking why you... away Erickson's agency there. Yeah. It's one thing to like come back and report a crime and like deal with that immediate danger, but he like it took him like a month to get them out there and like you know, uncovering the the remains of of the young woman. Like he he didn't stop banging this drum when he came up against in different commanding officers two different times. All the more impressive and all the more um, makes me want to know more, more backstory. Yeah. Erickson seems like a uniquely, like he, he can't forgive himself for what happened, but he seems like a uniquely moral person. You could make the case that this is like a condemnatory movie of all members of the service. If, 
Erickson is some kind of superhero from a morality perspective. Like if if it's making the case that like this kind of shit happened all the time and almost nobody was brave enough to speak up, this is like one of the few people who who did. Isn't it kind of making that case? I wonder. Do you like if you get sent out on a in a squad of five people? What are the chances that four of the five are psychopaths? Well, but four of the five aren't. One of them's a psychopath. One of them is is a is a dumb guy with what he thinks is a good idea. One of them is a is a very soft, malleable person, and one of them is a is a coward. Is a coward, and. Yeah, all it takes is one. I mean, the, the that's like every boy band ever. <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of every group of four or five boys. I mean, so many bad things happen because one dumb guy has what he thinks is a good idea. That is really what this movie felt like to me. Yeah, all you. I mean, the the soft minded guy and the you know and the henchman who's like, yeah, let's do it, let's frag her, let's burn this whole village. Yeah, the toady. I mean, it's just, I think, rare that you get a guy that says that says no and and manages to, I mean, that that's, that's why the John Leguizamo character is such an affecting one, because yeah. I think an awful lot of people put in that situation kind of fall in that category. And you ask yourself, if somebody has a gun to your head and says, do this atrocity, like how, how brave do you have to be? to say go ahead and shoot me in the back but i'm not gonna do i'm not gonna violate someone else's civil rights it's a it's a a question that we each ask each other every day because we're all complicit in a lot of crimes right now i mean that's part of the 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 national conversation is how complicit are we just by doing nothing and a, a lot of it is just that we're lazy but but when you when you when you don't do something because you feel like the risk to you and your own comfort is too great, uh, you know, that's what John Legazamo was doing. He was like, Psst. well, it's what, I mean, it's what Erickson does too. Like when he, he's like about to run away with her and he's like, no, then I'd be deserting. Right. And that would be bad. And I would get in trouble. Like, do you think Erickson is a hero here at any point? I didn't like him. There's something that is, non-heroic about his administrative reaction to what could be met with I mean like there's that scene where Sean Penn like throws him a gun and he's like what are you gonna do shoot me like all of this all of this field revenge is threatened at him but it at no point is something that he feels he can use for himself he says at the he says in the trial like i wish i'd shot him i think i probably should have just he never sh- even points a weapon at him no he doesn't <laughs> let me ask you this would this movie have been as effective or maybe more effective if we hadn't spent 30 minutes in the hooch there are people that make the case that like the depiction of rape on film it full stop is problematic. I'm not entirely sure where I fall in that, in that argument, but like the, it really bummed me out in this movie. Just like how like confidently it walks toward that, that moment. Like it's, it's as stomach churning as anything we've seen in the friendly fire project. 
But like the the movie Heaven and Earth, which we also found a harrowing watch, you really felt the trauma repeatedly inflicted upon her. And her humanity is yeah. is so much more present in that film. Do you think that's a function of Oliver Stone getting in close? Like, you're right with her. Yeah. You're in her face during. I do. I mean, in this movie, the the fact that after all of the time we spend leading up to the rape, that when it happens, now all of a sudden it is obscured. We don't see her face. Yeah. We don't see his. We don't see the violence of it. Yeah, it's weird to argue for something more traumatic, but it would come in the service of of Juan. Like it would serve her character. Yeah. This is a point you made, John, on another film, and I can't I, I wish I could remember which one it is, but like occasionally the character that has suffered the most being killed kind of feels like they're letting the audience off the hook, like, well, at least she doesn't have to live with this trauma. Right. And I do sort of feel like that's an issue here. Where and, you feel relief when she's finally murdered. Right. You know, it's what happened. But, like, she can't be, like, a, a fully-fledged human character if, if you feel relief when she's shot in the head, you know? Rape as an instrument of war is such a profound... It is a profound weapon because it does leave a living victim. Its intention is to act as a form of maiming. Right. And so we see soldiers murdered all the time, murder, 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 murder. And we understand what its place is in the war story. Like these soldiers are gone now. And if you eliminate enough, enough soldiers, then you win. But if you leave a trail of, of people with missing limbs, with burn scars, you know, emotional trauma and physical trauma, like you are doing a, it's a kind of total war, one that reverberates in living memory. And like, it is the movie saying that that is in some way intentional on the part of the command structure, if they are covering for that taking place. Sure. If they say like, ah, that's just how it goes. What happened is the way things are. Can I do a moment of pedantry? Sure. I, I like this because it's a, it's kind of train pedant adjacent. It's a public transit pedant. <laughs> oh, yeah. At the beginning and end of the movie, Erickson is riding the Muni Metro subway system in San Francisco, which first opened in 1980. Oh, burn! However, another writer is prominently shown reading a newspaper with the headline about Nixon's resignation, implying the scenes take place sometime around August 1974. Sometime around August 1974. We can't be sure when exactly, <laughs> apparently. Mm, muni pedant. Yeah. I, love, I love a muni pedant. Yeah, that, that's uh, one of the best types. I love that that logo has gone unchanged from the start. It was nice to see that muni logo. It's really well done. Yeah. Pardon me, sir. What's your point, sir? One of the points of a Vietnam War film, I think, is to make the case that no matter where you are, Inside or outside of a combat zone, you are always in danger. Uh, even when you think you're safe, maybe that is the most dangerous place to be. And this film makes that case fairly early on. It's when the platoon takes a break in that village and they're walking around and Michael J. Fox is fucking around with like water buffalo and they're, uh, they're interacting with the villagers and giving them chocolate and stuff. 
And uh, it's also the scene where Brown gets killed uh, from a sniper. But before that happens, that case is made to Erickson in the form of a mango that's given to him from a village child. He's about to, to dig into the mango. He says afterwards he was never going to eat it. But the, the case is made from the rest of his platoon that, like, you don't want to die that stupid because that mango is more times than not going to be filled with razor blades or glass or something else that's going to kill you. And you're going to die dumb, which is the worst Fuck, way to go. Adam is writing a film studies paper in his review. Here we go. Die dumb. Like, that's what a Vietnam War film is trying to evoke the feeling of, right? Like... That utter lack of safety, even in a piece of fruit. And to me, that is going to be, uh, that's going to be our rating system. One to five mangoes with questionable internals. Dubious mangoes. (laughs) Uh, Before watching this movie, I thought, how brutal could a Michael J. Fox movie be? And then that was immediately counterpointed with a reminder of oh yeah this is also a Sean Penn film and that is a feeling that continued throughout I wonder if maybe this film would have been uh, different had Eric Stoltz been cast in the Erickson role Hmm. (laughs) I just wanted to get one laugh in this this ep (laughs) Um, I can't get over the idea that there is no center to hold here to this film Like, I keep thinking about what this film is trying to say, and I keep coming up with nothing. Those that are on the side of this film being insulting to a soldier's time in Vietnam, like, I get that. This is an awful story about soldiers in Vietnam. But I might be more on that side if I felt like this film were saying anything at all in a broad sense. But it's not. It is a micro story inside this greater conflict that says nothing about the conflict in a greater sense. And to try to understand like what this film is attempting to do or trying to make me feel, I just come up empty. And I thought, I've thought so much about this film since seeing this, and I'm going to keep thinking about it. And that is usually an indication of a, of a film's quality. But in this case, I, I think about it because it frustrates me. And it feels like a missed opportunity. And that that ending is basically like that the icing on that shitty cake of like there was a there was a moment there to leave me, like however feebly or awkwardly Spielberg is able to end stories with, you know, that that birthday candle ending he can sometimes give it. Like this was poorly done and poorly done throughout. And I found it I found it at times pornographic, but mostly like insulting. I can't even give it the credibility of like, you know, it was hard to watch, but you should see it once and then never see it again. It's not even like that for me because at least like with an Oliver Stone film, like however flawed his ethos might be, like at least there is something there that he's trying to say. And I just don't like this film is too nihilistic to make that case for. So I'm going to say one mango for casualties of war. Wow. Did not like, did not think it was a good movie. Hmm. Fuck. I'm going to give it a slightly higher rating. And I tend to agree with basically everything you said, Adam. I I think that uh, its failures are, are fairly large and, and important. But um, 
I also felt like I was stuck thinking about it after I watched it and it was hard to get through. It was, it was not an easy movie to watch. And I then felt kind of trapped in thinking about it afterwards and immediately started reading the article it was based on. And the thing that emerged for me, I've, I've mentioned a a bunch of things that it changed about the story from the article, but the thing that is really amazing is how like generally faithful it is to the story. There are a couple of like choices of things that they decided to change that I cannot understand why they decided to change them. But overall, like it's remarkably faithful to a real thing that happened. And I think that my discomfort with Michael J. Fox as the main character actually kind of served the retelling of that story. And I don't think I can recommend the movie, I but I would definitely recommend the article to anybody who's curious about this. And um, I mean, even just for like the like weirdness of reading an article written in 1969, like the fact that the, Ving Rhames character is referred to as the Negro Lieutenant several times in the articles. Just like, wow, like I can't believe that that was like the, the way to do that in 1969. What a time, but like, it's a story that needs to be told. And while I don't feel great about the way De Palma set about telling it, I, I do applaud that, that he did try to tell it in a way like, he fought really hard to get this movie done, and it basically wouldn't have happened if he hadn't had a much more successful movie right before it. And, you know, like, these all enter the conversation, right? These these films all enter the conversation about the wars that they're about, and some are better than others, and some make a more compelling case than others. But uh, I don't think that you can have a a conversation about Vietnam or any war without talking about the atrocities perpetrated inside of it. And, uh, I guess I'll, I'll give this one, uh, two and a half dubious mangoes, two and a half dubious mangoes. Um, I think Ben, you, you almost said it perfectly, but I think it, I think I'll, I'll leave that to you, John. I think I'll just rephrase it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to to actually say it perfectly, which is that some <laughs> magazine articles are best as magazine articles. And I can see where this would be a tremendous magazine article, but it doesn't it doesn't follow that every great magazine article is a film. And um Interesting that we've seen two in a row. If we see a third, we have to take all the <laughs> magazine article movies off right. the list. And uh, A Private War was a magazine article that was a, a Vanity Fair profile of a person that had a lot of adventures and misadventures. Um, and sh- and we could look at kind of a an arc of journalism, an arc of war through her. This is a much more specialized article. And I keep referring to Platoon because Platoon covered a lot of this movie. I mean, you can see that Oliver Stone took plot elements from that same magazine article in making his much superior and much broader scope film. What's interesting about this movie is that it was greenlit by Dawn Steele, who was the first female head of a major studio in Hollywood. And this was the first film she greenlit 
in her career. Uh, she had a very brief tenure at the at the head of Columbia Pictures and died of a brain tumor at the age of fifty one. But Jeez. her her quote was when when greenlighting this movie, and this is as you were saying after The Untouchables was a huge success for De Palma. Her quote was, historically, Vietnam War movies have been very profitable. All of them, Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, Apocalypse Now, The Deer Hunter. You're looking at movies that have never been not pretty successful, but very successful. The foreign numbers have been extraordinary. And so in that quote, you see that there's something about this movie that was that was bandwagony and they were looking about they were casting about for vietnam movies and this was a new yorker article it had brian de palma attached you could see that on, on a pile of scripts that this would have floated to the top and it got greenlit for the wrong reasons and the things that we don't like about this movie the 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 tonal schizophrenia I think is that they were trying to make a hit yeah. about an atrocity, and that's not really the that's not really the formula. And they and they were casting some some young hot stars, uh, and that worked quite a few times in the late eighties. Born on the Fourth of July was a hit movie with some hot young stars, but it didn't work here. So I agree with you guys that this is a it's low on the movies you must see, but it's high on the number of, or it's high on the magazine articles you must read. And I'll give it, um, yeah, I'll, I'll give it two and a half dubious mangoes for the aspects of it that, that were compelling and that will kind of stick with you for Sean Penn's performance. I mean, there, there are things about this movie that are redeemable. Right, my one mango is for performances, which across the board I think are really strong. Yeah, and I'll I'll, I'll go as high as two and a half, but but uh, but not a mango more. Pretty uh, pretty scattershot reviews on this one. Yeah, interesting stuff. A lot to think about. I mean, it's hard it's hard to watch and talk about rape, but it is an it's as much an element of war as carpet bombing. Yeah. Well, one element of our show that is as much a part of the fabric of it as our rating is the choice of a guy, right? That's true. My guy is uh, Cherry. He's the kind of like doofy soldier that keeps asking a bunch of questions. I think they're like kind of headed out for one of their patrols and he like runs off ahead of them and steps on a landmine like they should have just shot him back at home. (laughs) Yeah. To save on jet fuel of flying him out to Vietnam. <laughs> like, I, I love, like, like every Vietnam movie, it feels like has one doomed guy, and you can just tell the second he pops up on screen. And uh, I, I feel like a doomed guy more often than not. He's not just shot, but he's filled with, like, an improvised explosive. Night of the shooting stars number of pierces <laughs> was, in his yeah. body. <laughs> He has a number of pierces that can only be measured in Night of the Shooting Stars. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My guy was uh, the agent, the the whether he's CIA or or who, but one of the the um, interrogating polo shirt wearers. 
was an actor by the name of Steve Larson, who is not an actor, but is in fact a guitar player, a guitarist for a band called Lime Green. Whoa. And uh, Dead Hot Workshop, which was some kind of like Arizona rock band from the 90s, back when Tempe, Arizona was briefly like the the new chapel hill in the year 2000 he played a character in a tv series called action his character name was blood and piss guy (laughs) (laughs) which also would have been a great band name yeah so uh i'm not familiar with uh with steve larson's work but if you look at his his cv like he's opened up for Shooter Jennings and Sammy Hagar and uh, wow. Kid Rock. Maybe in the universe where you had gone to work as a war correspondent, he would have been the third co-host of this show. <laughs> yeah, he's your guy. He's my guy because uh, because both because I feel like in a in a Vietnam scenario, I would have preferred to be a polo shirt CIA guy. That seems like the best American job in Vietnam. But also because that actor is like a like a, a C grade guitar player dude, C grade actor, C grade guitar player dude. That seems like what letter grade <laughs> would you give your own guitar playing? I'm definitely a C minus, C minus guitarist, <laughs> C minus actor, C minus podcaster. <laughs> Who's your guy, Adam? Uh, my guy is Rowan, and it's almost for what you don't get from him versus what you do. I feel like there was a sea story with Rowan and Erickson that was maybe cut out of the film. Rowan is a guy who Erickson uh, confides in and relies upon a bunch and is there to counsel him. Uh, He's he's, tall. He's handsome. He's clearly like a confidant. Sensible. And yeah, he's sensible in a way that uh, like so many people in this film are are extremes and he's very like right down the middle in a way that made him stand out to me greatly uh he only gets a couple of scenes in the film and i kind of wanted to know more about how he and erickson became friends for example or why he is to be trusted or on and on it felt like there was something there Boot with camp him buddy yeah i uh he felt like uh one of the rare sources of oxygen in the film where like you felt safe I felt safe with Rowan. I did too, but let me ask you this. What do you think Rowan would have done in the bush? He seems pretty pragmatic. I want to believe that Rowan would have shot Meserve. Because that is the hero that I needed in this movie. It's fucked up to say it, but... You go to war with the hero you have, Adam. Yeah, you get, you watch you a war movie with the characters <laughs> you, you have. Yeah, I get it. When your main weapon is grenade launcher, though, like, yeah. it's it's tough to, like, take out one guy. Yeah, that was a real part of it. Like, when, when Michael J. Fox had the, the thumper... Yeah. <laughs> and he was holding it at the group, he's like, take, take like, ten steps back, Erickson. <laughs> I've never <laughs> seen a war movie where there was a character who's main weapon was a grenade launcher that seems like a weapon that you pull around and employ when needed i know it's it wound up like that's part of why erickson wasn't charged with any crimes because when they found um when they found the victim's body she like there was no like that was his actual weapon and there were you know like he would have 
they would have found like grenade copper casings on her and not lead because it was like a different kind of uh you know they used different metal to make the the grenades for that thing that's some good artillery pedantry there nice one (laughs) do you guys want to roll that bone and see what we're gonna watch next yeah we got the 120 sided die here we go. Adam could not uh, could not countenance having a die of equal or lesser size than yours, John. He had to buy one that was a little bit bigger. It's pushing the limits of die technology. Yeah, they <laughs> they don't make a bigger one. Okay, here we go. Seventy-eight. 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 Oh, this is interesting. This is a movie that we talked about pretty recently. Uh, set in uh, Turkey on the eve of World War One, from 2017 it is The Ottoman Lieutenant Ooh. this is that movie that came out the same year as The Promise and what a coinkydink served to sort of uh, per- perhaps undercut the case for the Armenian genocide uh, you know who gave this film a five star review is Turkfan69 <laughs> <laughs> Him again. He that loves guy. this movie. Incorrigible. Uh, mm. Are you guys okay with watching a uh, genocide denial film? <laughs> Got to hear from both sides, Ben. Oh, no, John. <laughs> John. <laughs> oh. Listen, Please. this podcast believes in the Armenian genocide. Yeah, full so stop. We're gonna have to uh, we're gonna we're gonna have to say that at the beginning of this next film and as a disclaimer, yeah. we do not feel like our our uh, our feelings about the genocide are susceptible to being. Uh, like you say that now, but next week we're gonna be uh, sp- singing a different tune. That's right. We'll, uh, we're we'll unwavering if- about our feelings on the genocide, but I have a feeling we'll be interrogating Josh Hartnett's performance in this film <laughs> yeah. for most are, of its runtime. Are, are Josh Hartnett and Ben Kingsley going to survive this review, or will they be canceled by the time oh, we uh, get out to the so other side? So this is an all all star cast, huh? It, it does have some uh, some fairly major actors. In Was it. this financed by Reverend Sung Young Moon? Uh, I believe it had primarily Turkish financing. That's interesting. I mean, are we going to watch uh, what's the Scientology movie with John Travolta? Is that a war movie? Oh, uh, <laughs> Battlefield Earth. Yeah, that's a war movie, right? Uh, I might I might make the case that that's more pork chop than war. Oh, okay, All right. but. I mean, it does have the title Battlefield Earth. It says it right in the title. But I feel like most of the movie is about them, like, sitting in a chair and learning learning things about other planets mm. in the knowledge machine, right? Mm-hmm. Knowledge machine. I've I never, never seen it. It, it sounds like you have. Oh, yeah. I'll watch anything. It's got Barry Pepper and Forrest Whitaker in it. How am I going to not watch it? I'll never say when to Barry Pepper. <laughs> you don't like Forrest Whitaker? I love Forrest Whitaker. Uh, Ghost Dog is one of my favorite movies. It's a great movie, Ghost Dog. Not a war movie. No. Kind of a pork chop movie, though. Should Ghost Dog be on the bonus list? It's the only Jarmusch film I would ride for. What's going the war? On that list. What is the war that Ghost Dog is. Uh, gang, gang war? Gang war. Oh, gang war, sure. 
Well, let's cover that under separate cover. Yeah, yeah we'll have to cover that under separate cover. Anyways, uh, next week we will be uh, compromising our own morals and values with the Ottoman lieutenant. So uh, we'll leave it with Rob's from here. For John Roderick and Adam Pranick, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Ben Harrison, John Roderick, and Adam Pranica. It's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. If you feel like supporting the show, head on over to MaximumFun.org donate. It helps us keep the lights on over here at Friendly Fire. And as an added bonus, you'll get access to our Pork Chop feed, as well as all of the other bonus content on Maximum Fun. If you'd like to share the show online, use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Adam is at CutForTime. John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks, we'll see you next week. Fund.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.